I was working with a couple the other day, and in this case, we're going to call them Cindy and Bill. And Bill was feeling defensive. I could see him shifting as Cindy was beginning to try to talk to him about her feelings of longing to be closer to him, to feel more connected. And as the tension began to rise a little bit, I broke in as I usually do. And I said, wait a minute, hold on a second. Let's, let's slow this down. I said, Bill, something happened with you there. Something shifted with you. And I felt you get a little bit defensive or guarded. I said, what, what happened? And he said, well, she was telling me it's my fault that she's criticizing me, telling me that I'm not giving her what she needs and somehow I'm purposely withholding that. And he said, it's not my fault. He said, I, you know, he was obviously upset and getting defensive and a little bit angry. So as we began to walk through that with him, I asked him, I said, well, what exactly did you hear that told you that it was your fault, that she was blaming you? And he began to explain, well, you know, when she says things like, you know, I want to be closer to you, or when she says things like, you know, I have to wait until you get done with your work schedules and I feel like I'm always waiting. He said, that tells me this is my fault, that she's blaming me, that I'm not giving her what I need. And so we began to explore that even further. And I said, Bill, I said, is there any part of you that's able to just hear that she longs to be closer to you? And he said, yeah, there's a part of that. And I said, is there another part of you that also understands you might be filtering this in a way that what you're hearing is that criticism and the sensitivity that he said, oh, absolutely. He said, that's that may I mean, said, I'm, I'm, I'm open to the fact that that might be 90 percent of what I'm hearing is being filtered through through that particular lens. And I said, great. I said, let's just set that lens aside for a minute, that filter that says it's your fault, that you're somehow not meeting her need. And let's just focus on this little percentage here that's able to hear that all she's saying to you and expressing is that she longs to be closer to you. This, I think, is a great example of what a internal working model is. We're going to drill down into what that means in just a moment. But the question becomes, when we're hearing our partner and we filter something a certain way, how much is real of what we're hearing and how much is being filtered from past experiences? And so the question becomes, is it you or is it me? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Welcome to Trauma-Free Relationship, a podcast that provides support and guidance to help heal the wounds of attachment trauma. Whether you find yourself struggling with unresolved issues in the past or have experienced trauma in your current relationship, our goal is to provide accurate, scientifically informed information, as well as the tools to help you create a secure connection between you and your partner. And here's your host, Tom Philp. Okay, let's dive in. Today, we are talking about internal working models. This goes by a lot of different names, uh, depending on the particular theory that, that it's derived from different theorists have come up with different names for this. They go by core beliefs. They go by schemas. Uh, they go by mental representations, templates, attachment maps, um, whatever name that we're, we're calling it. And, and in, in attachment terms, it's called internal working models. Whatever name we go by, essentially what this is, is an internalized representation of interactions that shape our beliefs. 
And so I think about this a little bit like riding a bike. I'm assuming most of my listeners have learned to ride a bike at some point in their life. Uh, I know as a child, I was all over my bike, all over my neighborhood, everywhere uh, that I could be. And it was my prized possession in many ways because it transported me to my friends, to baseball practices, to whatever it was I was doing. That was my, uh, that was my go-to vehicle at the time. And uh, like riding a bike, it, it took a while to learn how to do that. So when we first get on a bike, when I first got on a bike, it was very shaky, right? My dad was holding the back seat, making sure I didn't fall over. Uh, at the time, we didn't wear helmets or knee pads because that just wasn't the thing in the 70s when you rode bikes. Uh, so I didn't have any of that protective gear on. There were lots of skin knees for sure. But over time, as I began to practice and work at it, what began to happen was that I began to internalize how to ride a bike. I be, went from being very shaky and keeping the handlebar steady to learning how to propel my feet and the motion of the bike forward while also steering and keeping it steady. And so that I was able to keep up a fast enough pace that I could then turn and steer and move the bike in the direction I wanted. And what essentially happened was my brain and my body internalized what that felt like. It internalized that skill. And so eventually I was able to jump on a bike with zero thought whatsoever and tear off down the street because I knew how to do that. I knew how to keep it steady. I knew how to propel the, the pedals forward at a fast enough rate that I didn't tip over. And so my body and my brain had learned what that was like. And that's a little bit of what an internal working model is. It's sort of an internalization or a template, if you will, that has, that has become automatic and, and has set expectations for what we are like, the expectations of what we think others are like, and the expectations of ourself in relationship with others. And a lot of these templates, these models are laid down early in our life through our attachment figures with our primary caregivers. And so we internalized what those, what those, interactions were like. And in doing so, it, it created expectations for us that we carry into our adult relationships. And so much like riding a bike, when we get into relationships and we become attached with a person, these models tend to filter and play out in our relationships without us even thinking about it. Just like riding a bike, I eventually got to the point where I could do stunts. I could jump curbs. I could jump uh, 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 bags of trash over a little ramp that I would made. I got better and better and more adept at riding that bike because first I had learned the basics of what that was like. And I had internalized that feeling and my body knew what to expect when I jumped on a bike and how far I could push it, how far I could push those, those stunts that I was doing back in the day. And that's a little bit of what internal working models are. So let's, let's do a formalized definition. So an internal working model, it's a mental rep representation. It's a, a template or an attachment map of our early relationships with our caregivers, as I mentioned just a second ago, that actually 
creates a template for future relationships. And, and these, these templates help us to organize, and we're gonna come back to that in a minute because that word's really important, to organize our perceptions of our partner's behavior in three different ways. It helps us organize our partner's behavior in that it shapes our expectations of future behaviors. So what I'm seeing now is what I can expect to see of my partner in the future. It also creates meaning about the current behavior. So this is the second way it organizes and shapes behavior of our partners is that it creates meaning. My partner's doing this because they're motivated by such and such. They're motivated to be closer to me and more connected. They're motivated to criticize me and tell me I'm doing wrong. They're motivated to eventually leave me. So we create meaning through these templates. That's why oftentimes we call them filters. And then finally, the third way it shapes perceptions of behavior is that they tend to emphasize either the cognitive or the emotional information at the exclusion of the other. And what I mean by that is depending on our early experiences, we either will hone in on the cognitive portions of our partner's behavior and emphasize those in our perceptions, or we will exclude the cognitive and we will heighten the emotional aspects of what our partner is conveying and the signals they're sending. And we will organize it that way. And this profoundly impacts our own response and our own expectations of ourselves. And so not only do we use these mental representations or these internal working models and templates to organize our partner's behavior, but we also very much use them to organize our own perceptions of ourself. How do I respond when I feel like I'm being criticized? The way Bill responded when Cindy was trying to explain to him, I wanna feel closer and more connected to you. And his response was, it's my fault. I'm not giving her what I need. And part of the way he filtered that is because of his previous experiences growing up in his family of origin, where when he tried to reach out in times of need, there was no one there to comfort him, to soothe him, to protect him. And not only was not anybody there, but it was actually then used against him. Yes, I'll help you only if you do such and such. So his need to reach out was then weaponized against him in many ways. So it's no wonder that he hears criticism. It's no wonder that he feels like he's being blamed for the lack of connection from his partner. And then he's shaping that and filtering that information by hearing her demands and then blaming himself and getting defensive, feeling like once again, I can't get it right. I couldn't get it right in my family growing up and I can't get it right for my partner now. Now, one of the things I wanna clarify is that these templates are not exact replications of events that happened in the past. We are not remembering exact events as they unfolded in our childhood. What we are remembering are bits and pieces and the feeling of what happened. And Damasio, who's uh, written a great book, uh, 
by the very same name, the feeling of what happens is very much what it is. What's, what's being triggered in us and either causing defensiveness or triggering our vulnerabilities um, is, is the feeling that brings up, that comes up for us when we get triggered like that. And in those moments, uh, we usually often do go into our defensiveness because we feel vulnerable. We feel uh, something's been touched inside of us that triggers that vulnerability uh, that takes us back to that place, but only in bits and pieces. It's not like a full flashback we're having, like a trauma flashback might be, although trauma flashbacks do come in bit, bits and pieces as well, but we're remembering the feeling of being rejected and abandoned and not attuned to in those places. So I think it's really important to remember that the interactions we have as adults um, that creates these triggers inside of us and these feelings are partially what's happening in the relationship, the real relationship that's occurring there, and partially what's, what's a representation of the past that is being filtered through that. They're not exact replications of our memories. I know oftentimes with couples, they will get locked in what I call whose reality is going to dominate. And so what I see oftentimes is couples will get into whose version or whose memory of an event is going to actually define what happened and is going to tell the narrative of that story. And so I'll find couples, and let's just take Cindy and Bill as an example. Cindy can say, well, you know, you didn't say that then. You said it, you said this to me. No, I didn't say that. I only said that when you said this. And so now they're caught in whose version of reality is going to win. And that's a zero sum game. That's not going to work out well for either of them because either of them feels so protective and adamant that their version of reality is correct. It's, I know what I heard. I know what I remember. Don't tell me I'm getting it wrong because I feel so adamant that I'm right. And of course, so does the partner. And so oftentimes these arguing over whose version of reality is going to win is, a, is like I said, a zero sum game. Nobody's going to win that argument. And that's not a, a productive path to go down when trying to resolve conflict in part because it's a combination of the way both people are filtering the event through the, the past experiences they've had and their internal working models, and partially because of the interactions that they had in real life as adults trying to get their needs met in this relationship. Okay, so what typically happens then is when we have these internal working models, is that we tend to use them in three different ways. And so the first way we might use them is we might treat ourselves like our past attachment figures treated us. And we call this a, a negative view of self. And so oftentimes what we'll see is we'll see people that will blame themselves, have low self-esteem, um, carry around a sense of shame, I'm broken, I'm not right, I'm unlovable. These are what we call negative views of self, and they are internalized representations of how they were often treated growing up, that they are now treating themselves in the same way. The second way inter uh, uh, internal 
um, attachment models affect us is that we will treat others like our past attachment figures treated us. And we call that a negative view of others. And so oftentimes we will, we will guess that somebody has a negative motivation towards us. And so we will treat them as if our attachment figures treated us growing up. So we will be critical. We will try to turn up the heat to get more engagement. We will uh, be inconsistent, um, criticizing, demanding, so on and so forth, because that is often how we were treated and what we saw and what we internalized as well. So we call that a negative view of others. And then finally, what will happen is, and this is the third way we'll use these models, is that we will project onto others that they're going to treat us like our past attachment figures treated us, and that then we will try to be preemptive and we will treat them as if they're going to treat us in that same manner. And we call that projection. And I'm sure that's a term that many people have heard before. Projection is simply taking something that is inside of you, an expectation, and placing that onto your partner that they are going to act in a certain way. And then you begin to treat them as if that is true for them, as if they have that motivation, when in fact, that's really coming from you. And so if I think my partner is going to abandon me and reject me, I might start causing a conflict and I might reject my partner first because on some level, I feel like my partner, that is their motivation. They're going to eventually reject me. So I might as well create conflict and reject them first and shut it down and move away and move into my protective strategies because that's going to eventually happen anyway. And so these internal working models um, unfold in relationships, usually in one of these three ways. We have a negative view of ourselves. We treat ourselves like our past attachment figures treated us. We treat others the way our past attachment figures treated us or we project onto others that they're going to treat us in a certain way, and we act as if that is true for them. Now, part of the problem, especially with that last one, and we call that projection again, is that those internal working models can create self-fulfilling prophecies for us. And that's simply a belief or an expectation that when we act upon it, confirms that belief or expectation. It creates a negative feedback loop. So let me give you an example. I go to my partner and I say, honey, are, are you okay? You seem a little down today. Are you upset with me? And she says, no, no, I've just kind of had a bad day. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, it seems like you're upset. Are you sure? Did I do anything wrong? Is this because I forgot to take out the trash? And she's like, no, Tom, I, you're fine. I'm not upset with you. Well, are you sure you're not upset with me? Because you know, it's not my fault and I start getting defensive. It's not my fault I took out the trash. I, sometimes I forget, geez, I can't do everything right. And all of a sudden she's starting to feel attacked and all of a sudden she gets mad at me. And then I go, ha ha, I knew you were mad at me. I knew you were upset without any realization that what I had done was created somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy for myself. I provoked her into being mad. Why? Because I held the belief 
that she was mad at me anyway. And so I might as well go ahead and get this over with. And I confirmed that belief through my own actions. So I hope that gives you an example of what projection can be like and the three different ways that internal working models can play out in our relationship. So now what I wanna do is I wanna break these down into secure, anxious, avoidant, as well as disorganized attachment styles. So you have kind of an idea, what do these internal working models look like from a secure and insecure type of uh, internal working models or, or attachment styles. And I've done previous podcasts. I encourage you to go back and listen to those because I did one on anxious attachment style as well as avoidant attachment style that can add a lot more context to this uh, conversation here too as well. So feel free to go back and look at those. So first of all, when we're talking about an internal working model in a secure attachment, People with this type of model expect themselves to be worthy of love. They have a positive representation of themselves and they expect themselves to be supported. They expect others to be available and responsive to them when they need. And they feel comfortable relying on their partner and expressing their needs to their partner. So they don't fear closeness and they don't feel threatened by too much distance in the relationship. And let me repeat, they have a positive sense of self and they have a positive sense of their partner. They expect their partner to show up and be available and responsive when they need. They can also comfort themselves, self-soothe and tolerate if their partner is not available to them and responsive always. So they have the flexibility to be able to adjust their internal working models based on whether their partner might be available in that moment or whether they might not. But they had this internal model of being worthy of love and support. Whereas an anxious attachment person, their internal working model is that they have a negative view of themselves and often a positive view of others. So they worry that their partner will abandon or reject them because they feel often like they're not worthy of love. And they feel they put their, their partner more in a positive um, frame of mind and up on a pedestal a little bit. If I can create a connection with this person, I will feel completely filled up. If I can create a connection, then all this longing will go away and I will finally be able to merge with this person and feel whole and feel complete. And this person will complete me. And so they tend to elevate others and they tend to de-evaluate themselves. And of course, they often worry that their partner will abandon or reject them. And they, as such, they might appear very clingy or demanding, and they may have difficulty trusting their partner because they're not sure if their partner's really ever gonna completely show up for them in the way they need. So that's a little bit about how internal working models play out in the attachment style. What about the avoidant style? The avoidant people uh, that have internal working models that have this particular style of attachment tend to have a positive view of themselves, but a negative view of others. So they often believe that others cannot be trusted or relied upon and that they won't really show up for them. 
as a, as a result, they may avoid intimacy and closeness in their relationships. And they may also be quick to dismiss their partner's needs, not because they feel defected within themselves. They actually feel like they're good people. But what they don't understand is why others are constantly trying to require more of them, constantly making them feel like they're never good enough, they're not measuring up, or they're failing at the relationship. So they tend to have a negative view of others, and they sort of recoil at the, the needs of their partner for closeness and connection. And they, they deactivate, as I've talked about before, they deactivate their attachment needs when they get triggered. And they will overemphasize the cognitive aspects and they will downplay the emotional aspects. It was really hard for Bill to be able to hear the emotional need, the need for closeness and connection from Cindy when he was trying to emphasize the cognitive aspects of that. For Bill, he was hearing that he was failing, he was not getting it right, and that she was blaming him for that. He was emphasizing the cognitive. As opposed to being able to be emotionally available and stay connected with her and hearing her heart saying, I want to be closer to you. I want to feel more connected. I love you. I need that from you. And of course, the opposite was true for Cindy. Cindy was emphasizing the emotional aspects. He pulls away from me. He's always busy. He leaves me feeling empty. He leaves me feeling wanting more at the exclusion of the cognitive aspects of that, which is I understand he is busy. I understand he's not always available to me. And I've got the ability to self-soothe until he is available to me again. So that's a little bit in the difference between the avoidant and the anxious attachment style and the way internal working models play out. There's one more type of model and that's called the disorganized attachment, excuse me, not model, one type of insecure attachment style. And that is the disorganized attachment, essentially disorganized attachment. And I haven't talked a whole lot about that on the podcast, but, but they don't have any particular attachment style. So they, they jump from anxious to avoidant. I want you, I need you, get away from me, I hate you. I love you, don't leave me, I can't stand you, give me space. They don't know how to negotiate the amount of closeness or distance in a relationship they, they need, want, or desire, or what makes them feel safe. So they bounce back and forth, essentially having no particular attachment style at all. So people with internal working models that have a disorganized view of attachment have a negative view of themselves and a negative view of others. You're withholding, you withdraw, you punish me when I need you, yet I'm unworthy of love and I recoil and pull away when you try to pull close. And of course, with this particular attachment style, it is often um, out of traumatic uh, or abuse in early childhood that this particular style comes about, often because there was no resolution to, to um, the environment that they were in. It wasn't born just of inconsistency, inconsistent parenting, and it wasn't born just of neglectful parenting. It was born of punishment parenting. And so not only was it 
Was it inconsistent at times? It was neglectful at times. And then it turned on them and was punishing to them as well. And so they had no, no resolution. They had no way to be safe, period, no matter what move they made um, in order to resolve and try to maintain that attachment style or attachment tie to their parents. So those are the three different types of insecure attachment styles and the way internal working models play out in, in the inner life of, of these individuals. What I wanna do now is I wanna just walk through, so, okay, Tom, what do I do with this information? Now that I understand a little bit about internal working models, now that I understand a little bit about how my, it might show up in my relationship, from an avoidant, anxious, or disorganized insecure attachment style, as well as what a secure attachment style looks like, what do I do with this? So I wanna pose a series of questions that you can just think about and begin to walk through yourself in your own time about what this might feel or look like or show up for you in your relationship. And the first question I have is when you get triggered, because remember, insecure attachment styles only show up when there's been a threat to the relationship, either too much closeness for the avoidant or too much distance for the anxious. They don't always show up when both, when both individuals are in secure connection with each other. But when triggered, they do show up. So the question becomes, do I tend to overvalue the cognitive information to the exclusion of emotional information when I get triggered? Is it hard for me to stay in emotional connection with my partner? Or do I find I go to my head and I'm trying to solve the problem? I'm trying to fix my partner and I'm downplaying the emotions in our relationship together. Or conversely, do I evaluate the emotional information and overvalue that to the exclusion of the cognitive information? Do I get consumed and overwhelmed by my emotions? And then do the outpouring of those emotions spill out onto my partner so that I, I project that anxiety onto them in a way that can overwhelm them in a way that I'm not thinking clearly always. I've been hijacked emotionally in my brain. And so I'm just running on pure adrenaline because I need to get my partner connected to me. So do I tend to over-evaluate the emotion at the exclusion of the cognitive information? And do I tend to devalue my partner's need for me or overvalue myself and my independence? Conversely, do I tend to devalue myself and overvalue my need for my partner and my anxiousness? Again, these are just questions I want you to ask yourself as you sort of walk through implicitly what happens to me in my relationship when I get triggered. Because if you're anxious and you get triggered, what's gonna happen is you're gonna give supremacy, you're gonna give more credence to the emotional information you're feeling and less to the cognitive. You're gonna over-evaluate your need for your partner and devalue their need for independence. And you're going to try to use everything within you to get your partner to come closer to you and connect to you. And of course, the inverse is true if you are more of a avoidant style in your attachment. So three more questions. 
do I treat myself like my caregivers treated me? Do I tend to have more of a negative view of self um, in my relationships? So when I get triggered, do I often feel unloved, unworthy, like I'm, I don't have the right to be loved or something's defective or broken in me? Um, or do I treat myself like my early caregivers treated me and I tend to have a negative view of others? They want too much, they're too demanding, they're controlling, they're manipulative. Manipulative. These types of things are tend to devalue others while maintaining more of a positive view of yourself. And finally, are there times when I might project my fears and my expectations onto my partner that they're going to treat me in a less than loving and caring way? Do I tend to project that they're going to leave me and abandon me? Do I tend to project that they're going to be controlling and manipulative? And can I trace that back to my fears that are coming from me versus what's actually happening in the relationship? And can I leave any room or any space inside me for the way I filter that information versus what my partner might be saying they're feeling or what might their need be? Can I differentiate, is it you or is it me? Thank you very much for listening today. As always, I really appreciate you tuning in and we're gonna bring many more podcasts to you. Make sure you leave a comment, let us know what's going on with you, what's happening in your life. Do you like what you're hearing? Do you wanna hear more or something different about your relationships, the way trauma and stress uh, impacts your relationship and your relation attachment style. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Trauma-Free Relationship, a podcast for the healing of attachment trauma. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or our website at traumafreerelationship.com. Be sure to look for our next episode on your favorite streaming service.